here it is. We're at episode two. Yes, we made it all the way to two of the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast. And we are Keto for the Extreme Physique Culture, or as some like to say, Keto for Badasses. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Goodwin, and uh, first of all, let me come out and thank all of you for your generous support of episode one. Um, it was very, very well received. It uh, had a ton of downloads and a lot of subscribes and follows and some ratings. And um, it was even well received in the iTunes nutrition category. We cracked the top 100 in that nutrition category, making it all the way to 68 last time I checked. So, and that's all because of you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. I would really appreciate your continued support. Tell a friend, tell a loved one, hell, tell an enemy, I don't care. Uh, just help spread the message. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So we are here at episode two, and I'm gonna jump right in today. I don't wanna waste any time, because my initial plan with about the first four or five uh, episodes of this podcast was to cover a lot of the initial basics. And number one, if you uh, got to check that out, I told a little bit of my story, uh, small nuggets of my story and what brought me here and what has brought me success doing this. And also went into sort of the basic tenets of the ketogenic bodybuilding nutrition protocol. And I sort of walked you through that, just uh, some bullet points um, per se. Uh, so with episode two, what I want to do is I want to keep expanding on that. And what I want to do today is I want to cover a document that I wrote, gosh, it's been over a year now and, uh, over 10,000 downloads later. Um, it's called the ketogenic bodybuilding, uh, rules of engagement. It's available at my website, uh, robgoodwin.com. Um, if you go to the, uh, links at the top, you'll see one that says other stuff or something like that you'll see the download for the um, rules of engagement or also known as the KGBROE. And that's a free download. And it just, what it does, it sort of sets the tone for what we're about. And so people who are new to this approach or just coming into the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Facebook group, and if you're not a member, we'd love to have you. Go ahead and join that. One of my lovely and talented admins will get you approved right out of the gate and uh, we'll get you in to join the discussions. But uh, what we usually do for new members coming in there is we will often direct them to that document because it sort of walks you through our basic ideology. Okay. And I wrote that thing in literally like 30 minutes. I just uh, took several bullet points off the top of my head that I felt uh, were, were the most needed to know or understand. So you could sort of, uh, you know, jump into this as quickly as possible and also skim through it and understand what we are all about. So, you know, when you walk through that, you'll either kind of dig what we're saying and you'll jump in and try to be a part of it and give it a whirl or you'll decide, ah, it's not for me. And, you know, you won't waste any time. But uh, for the most part, it's been very, very well received and it's helped people get on the right track quickly. So what I'm going to do today, you know, and I'm going to walk through the document because some people just like to hear it in audio. It's some people like audiobooks. Some people, you know, just want it spoken to them. And the cool thing today is I can walk through the document and sort of go through some of these points and paragraphs and I can also expand on them. And uh, and I've not rehearsed this. I don't have really any plans. I just plan to you know kind of do this off the top of my head. So apologies in advance if, if I stumble, but uh, I think it's going to be a good podcast to sort of refer people to who are also new coming into this, or if you know somebody who says, oh, that's, 
that's not possible. You can't, you know, you can't get jacked and cut and shredded and awesome, you know, doing keto with training, blah, blah, blah. And you might be able to say, hey, you know, check this out, download this and listen to it. And, um, you know, it might be an hour they'll never get back and hate you for. But for the most part, I think they might appreciate you directing them to something like this so we can sort of walk you through the, 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 the basic ideology. So does that make sense? Is that fair? So uh, I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can. And uh, that way, this will also be a very, very helpful thing, as I said, for you newbies who are coming into this. And you're like, keto bodybuilding, what? So, you know, that way you can kind of jump in and have an understanding of, of what road you need to take first and uh, sort of the twists and turns of it and help navigate down this road with some initial success with hopefully without getting frustrated. And by me sort of talking through it as things pop in my head where I can stress a few points that I think are more important that you really need to pay attention to, then I can kind of outline that. So fair enough. So, hey, sh screw it. Let's walk right into this. The ketogenic bodybuilding rules of engagement, the KGB ROE, it is the ketogenic bodybuilding hybrid keto bodybuilding approach that I developed over the years to maximize lean gains while subsequently having the ability and knowledge to incorporate certain strategies to cut down to a stage worthy body, or at least the most extreme physique, you know, at the family re reunion or at the beach or at the pool or out on the boat or wherever the hell you're going, where you want to look your best. Um, I feel very confident that if you walk through this properly, it can get you there quickly so we can set you on the right course. Let me begin by saying this is not butter chugging keto. This is not your super high fat, put sticks of butter in your coffee, live off of plates of fat back keto. Uh, this is a primal ketogenic protocol for the extreme physique culture, for hard training athletes, whatever that means to you. If your goal is muscular hypertrophy, putting on muscle or maintaining muscle and having improved body composition through intense training and nutritional strategies, you might like what we're doing here. We've taken the, the, key, the, the keto primal sort of an ancestral health approach um, and we've combined it with the hard training world and made a little few little tweaks uh, to make it work. And it's worked extremely well for me and it's worked extremely well for clients. It's I've had athletes on stage that have placed top three in bodybuilding competitions and, and uh, physique competitions. Um, I myself have uh, never placed lower than three in a competition. Uh, I won my both my classes last year doing this approach. So it's been, it's been tested and I've got a lot of other great peers in the industry that I think would, would at least nod their heads and say, yeah, this, this is on the right track. So, but it's not that butter chugging keto. Um, you see a lot of people in the keto orthodoxy, um, who are trying, who have been trying to push this super high fat version of keto. And again, you know, for somebody who's morbidly obese or, or, or terribly obese or has a terrible weight problem or whatever, or maybe doing it for health reasons, you know, I'm not going to tell you that if you have your fat at 70% and your protein at 25 and, and your carbs at five, even though I hate doing percentages, like doing grams, we're going to talk about that. If you're doing that and you're not a hard training athlete, or even if you are, if it, listen, like I've said, I don't have a weird emotional attachment to this. I've just found what I think works the best for the hard training athlete who wants to get the benefits of a ketogenic primal nutrition plan. If what you're doing is working for you, then keep doing it. Or perhaps maybe think, oh, if this is working so well, 
maybe I should give this a try for six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks. Maybe we could even take you to a level that you didn't even think was possible. So consider that. So uh, again, I'm not here to burst your bubble and say, I am right and beat my chest. I'm just saying that the evidence is out there and I've seen it work too well. And I know from personal experience, if you take in more fat than your body can utilize or burn, uh, you know, if you take in fat that doesn't support your level of output and training, um, then you're going to store it. You know, it's like if you if you try putting 15 gallons of gas in a 10 gallon gas tank, you're going to get five gallons of gas on your feet. You know, it's got to go somewhere. Uh, you know, it, it will store on the body. So don't just think that fat is this magic nutrient once you take carbs out that just evaporates into the body and can't store. You know, I've had dozens and dozens of clients come to me wanting me to fix their keto. You know, say, oh, I've been doing this and it's not working and it worked for a while. Now I'm putting on weight and I feel like shit and I'm not looking the way I want to look and I feel smooth or I feel soft or whatever. And oftentimes, you know, real simple guys, like I said, this is real simple stuff. The very first thing I do after looking at their macros and crunching some numbers is I bring the fat down and I bring the protein up. Yeah, how complicated is that? And it usually ends up immediately making a dramatic benefit or improvement to what they've been doing. And then we really run the numbers and tweak them and keep following it. And then we just kind of, kind of, you know, really keep going down that road and keep adjusting and turning the knobs and flipping the switches and turning the levers until we get it what's right for them. So uh, it's not about just chugging fat down your throat. And, you know, there was a guy... There, there was a there was a guy recently in, in our Facebook group, and we get a lot of people like this. And God bless them, you know, whatever, you know. But uh, you know, don't come in and say, "Oh, well, what you're doing is not keto, and you should stop doing that, dude." If it's working, and it is changing lives and changing bodies and 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 changing uh, the way people's you know body looks and the way their health. Uh, and how they look in the mirror, and if they're happy with their reflection, then don't talk to me about, you know, oh, well, I'll bet you bumped out of ketosis, or that's too much protein. Why don't you just shut your mouth and give it a shot? Because some of this stuff is sixth grade science as well. And we're going to talk about that in one of the rules of engagement today, too. So, you know, rather than just being a, a scathing critic, why don't you, uh, you know, pull up a chair, sit back, and hear what I have to say, and let's reason together. And maybe you might find that, hey, maybe a slight shift in strategy might be something that you're looking to do as well. So fair enough. Uh, okay, but there's a formula and a criteria for success. And I'm just going to give you the bullet points here. Okay. So what are we talking about? Well, first, I need you to understand, and, and I tell this to all of my clients, there are no absolutes. You know, there is no, you know, things chiseled in stone that, that are absolutes in this because everyone is different. The only real absolute for me is that there is no human requirement for carbohydrate by the body to sustain life. That's a fact. We talked about that in episode one. We do, however, use carbs as a very specific tool at very specific times for specific goals per the individual's unique needs to get the most out of training. I'm going to say that again. We do use carbs as a very specific tool at very specific times for specific goals per the individual's unique needs to get the most out of training. Now, there are certain, yes, there are outliers out there that I can't give 20 grams of carbs to without shit just going off the rails. But those people are unique and they're not the majority. 
But for those people, we have ways around that. There's other things we can do. But for the majority of people, I can give you some carbohydrate and we can use that to your advantage. They are not the devil. You know, some people literally think that if I take in, you know, two grams of carbs from the freaking sugar-free gum, that everything's just going to fall apart. And that's just not the way it works. You know, like I said, carbs can be a very, very useful tool. And we're going to talk about that. I've been told and argued with on so many occasions that my protocol, oh, it's not real keto or, oh, it's too, too high in protein or, or it shouldn't involve carbs around workouts. Oh, no, no, no. Or a CKD refeeds never, you know, you should never do that. You don't, you don't want to come out of ketosis. Oh my God. You know, the whole world will explode if you come out of ketosis. Shut up. Okay. It, it's again we are using the advantages of a low carb ketogenic primal diet at specific times to reap specific results out of this protocol and it works so stop thinking everything has to be some absolute or some orthodoxy orthodoxy is the death of intelligence okay if you believe those things you know proteins the devil and it turns to gummy bears and all that stuff then you may not be the hard training athlete that this kind of keto is designed for. So maybe move along, you know, thanks for stopping by. Love you. Mean it. God bless you. We wish you nothing but the best, but maybe it's just not for you. If what you're doing is working, then carry on. But if you think maybe I should, again, sit back and listen to some of this and maybe give it a whirl, maybe we can make even some fine adjustments to what you've been doing and take you to a whole nother level. Does that make sense? So um, uh, we talk about Kenny, the keto cultist in, in the document, and it's Kenny's become kind of a legend. Um, but I, I tell the simple, simple story to make a point that, you know, it, don't just do orthodox cookie cutter keto because some keto guru told you to do it, you know, once again, too much fat can turn to fat on your ass. You know, what, you know, the thing that drives me insane is if you take in more fat than your body can use, then you're just going to add more fat to your body. And I often ask my clients, listen, yes, we want to burn fat, but do you want to burn the fat in your 600 calorie butter coffee? Or do you want to burn the fat on your ass? Well, so far, I'm at 100% with ass fat, okay? Everybody wants to burn the fat on their ass. So the great thing about keto is if you get into that state and you make those adjustments, the body is going to become very efficient at burning its own body fat first. And why in God's name everybody's dumping, you know, 60 grams of freaking fat into their morning coffee is beyond me. Okay, so, and if you are doing that and it's even working to a degree, that just means you're still in a caloric deficit by the end of the day. And if you take that out and make a few adjustments, you might get your body burning even more of its own fat. So maybe you can be part of the ass fat burners. I don't know, give it a whirl, think about it. So let's say I stay true to my ketogenic bodybuilding protocol and I keep my carbs low after a proper adaptation period, we're going to talk about that. Let's say, you know, my workouts are improving and in order to improve my lean mass, I make the decision to significantly up my protein because I know this works from years of experience. 
And I like a greater meal frequency because I've used this in the past and it works. So let's say I up my protein, I increase my meal frequency while continuing to fuel my body on healthy animal fats and healthy oils, which I do in the right amounts. Along comes Kenny the keto cultist. We all know this guy. He tells me that, oh, dude, you know, regardless of how I look and how he looks, mind you, you know, Kenny will tell me that too much protein is going to bump you out of ketosis, dude. It's going to bump you out of ketosis, man. I'm telling you, you're going to be out of ketosis. Please, for the love of God, listen to me before you bump out of ketosis. And you should only eat when you're hungry, man. I mean, if you're not hungry, then don't eat, for God's sake. So imagine me nodding nicely with a smile on my face because, you know, I'm a nice guy. You know, because Kenny, you know, I'm gonna, he, he only eats twice a day, sometimes OMAD, one meal a day. If you don't know what that means, it's, it's really hot right now. Kenny only eats twice a day, and he does a lot of intermittent fasting because that's cool. And Kenny wants to look good at cocktail parties because that's what keto is, according to Kenny. Intermittent fasting, you know, one or two meals a day, you know, lots of fat, protein, too high will turn to sugar and, and, and land on your hips and thighs. You know, that's what keto is to Kenny and to many of the keto orthodoxy out there. The dogma is deep out there and I get inundated with it every day. And spoiler alert, protein does not turn to gummy bears and gluconeogenesis, the conversion of protein to glucose is a demand-driven process and that is not to be feared. So you can eat your protein. So go throw a big ass steak on the grill, shall we? So here's the question, Kenny, do I lower my protein and do your two meal a day thing? Or do I stay the course, up my protein and meal frequency to promote lean gains while operating in a fat adapted state? The thing that I'm doing that's working for me? My answer? Well, let's say my keto bodybuilding hybrid protocol has me in a mild state of ketosis. Say, let's say 60 to 70% of the time. Yet it adds significant lean mass. I stay lean or even drop some body fat and fuel my training in a way that allows me to train at a level required for hypertrophy to occur. That's with carbohydrates. I will even incorporate those well-timed carbohydrates to manipulate hormones like the much needed insulin, leptin, and cortisol in the right amounts at the right times to keep growth occurring and fat burning. In other words, dude, I'm succeeding. I'm achieving my goals because I made these adjustments to the ketogenic style approach to make it work for me as a hard training athlete, right? Or. I could follow Kenny's advice, drop my protein, up my fat, lower my meal frequency, stay in ketosis 95% of the time or more, and not only fail to get the results I desire, but possibly begin to add some body fat. Why would I do that? Why should I do that? Why the hell would you do that? So if the goal is to get a ripped, lean, jacked, gorgeous, banging body that looks good freaking naked, and these few adjustments help contribute to that, if you're not just doing this as a therapeutic thing, then you're gonna tell me that I'm doing it wrong? All right, before I get testy, let's move along. The moral of the story here with Kenny 
is that keto is not about obsessing over ketones or ketosis. It's about being hyper-focused on becoming fat adapted and using fat and protein to drive performance and hypertrophy, muscle gain. Ketosis is not the goal. It is the driver to obtain fat adaptation and metabolic flexibility. It's something that we can turn on and turn off and use for its advantage. We can make it our bitch, all right? <sighs> there, are, there are more than a couple obese keto gurus out there. There are even some on the New York Times bestseller list. And if your keto guru is obese, find a new one. A properly designed ketogenic diet should also produce body fat reduction as well as good health and the reversal of many diseases and metabolic disorders. I mean, that's really why I got into this to begin with, is to feel better and to turn some, turn some of those things around. Some of the ill effects of carbohydrates, but if you're not also losing body fat and changing your body composition, you're freaking doing it wrong, man. I mean, what's the point? All right, onward. This is not therapeutic keto. This is about becoming fat adapted. The goal is to become an efficient and dominant fat burner and rid yourself of the bondage of glucose dependence and addiction along with the cascade of negative health effects associated with it. Many over the years have expressed to me that while keto is just fine for weight loss or even a useful tool for endurance athletes, and it is, that's how I found out about it initially over a decade ago, it'll never work for high intensity training and muscle growth. Really? Well, yeah, we've kind of blown that myth right out of the water like a nuclear bomb, and some of that myth can be disproven by seventh grade freaking science. The funny thing is back in the 70s and 80s, there were many bodybuilders in the era of Arnold, Mentzer, Zane, and, and even into the 90s. Uh, some of these pros used what they called back then a high fat diet. That They literally just called it the high fat diet. They didn't call it keto. They, they didn't use that word back then. They didn't even know what that was. But they, some bodybuilders found that you know, putting the high fat and the protein high and dropping the carbs was another way that they could pack on mass and get leaner faster. I've experienced some of this stuff. They use that high fat, high protein diet uh, to, to pack mass on and then to make the to transition to cutting easier. Additionally, many bodybuilders and physique competitors, they enter mild ketosis when they're on their contest cutting diet where carbs are generally significantly reduced. Just about every bodybuilder or physique competitor you're ever gonna meet will tell you that when they get that, that last eight, 10, 12 weeks out, they're dropping their carbs like crazy because that's how you get lean. Bodybuilding legend John Perillo, one of my mentors, I've got, I, I had the honor and privilege of being able to train with him. He's a legend bodybuilding coach and powerlifting coach, nutrition guru. He recognized, he's not a keto guy. He's, he's a, you know, he is a carb guy with protein, less fat in the off season. But he even recognized the importance of MCT oil for his athletes while, in, while they were in their very low carb phase for energy and adequate calories when they were in a carb deficient state. The goal is to enter fat adaptation and teach your body that fat is a better energy resource than carbohydrates, or at least as good. And that's really when the magic begins to happen. Does that make sense? So let's dive right in to the seven ketogenic bodybuilding rules of engagement. And I call them prime directives because it's, you know, kind of keeps that cool, you know, military thing kind of going and it sounds badass or, or whatever. Um, so I've got seven prime directives or seven rules of engagement and I'm going to run through them and probably expand a little bit on each one as I see fit or if the mood kind of strikes me. So, uh, because I have the artistic license to do that. So deal with it. But, uh, and I might have something important to say 
that I might have forgotten to expand on when I wrote this document so hastily um, well over a year ago. So here we go. The first prime directive or directive number one is to become fat adapted. You have to adapt your body to utilizing body fat and exogenous fat as a vital uh, energy source or even a preferred energy source. Uh, most of us are too uh, glucose driven and we've been uh, glucose dependent for practically our entire lives. Uh, not long after we stopped breastfeeding, if you did that, and then uh, you know started consuming carbohydrates and became a regular glucose burner, uh, far removed from what our hunter-gatherers did. So you have to become fat adapted. What does that mean? Well, fat adaptation, or we could call it keto adaptation, that term was coined by a gentleman named Steve Finney uh, in 1980 to describe the process in which human metabolism switches over to using fat exclusively for fuel rather than sugar. Being fat adapted means burning fewer carbohydrates and more fat both awake and at rest. Um, less glycolysis and uh, more burning of ketone bodies in the bloodstream, well that means less oxidative stress. You have a better immune system, you have overall better health, and the ability to burn fat both on your body and the fat that you eat as your primary fuel. So it's a very good and positive thing. Burning fat as fuel becomes easy as insulin secretion is kept at bay. Uh, the appetite and weight regulation system through the hypothalamus and leptin insulin interaction will work as it should or the way it was designed to. Like insulin, and we know insulin's important, you know, we, we don't want to completely uh, stop insulin production. Uh, we want to have uh, as much as needed. You know, it's not how much or how little, but the precise amount required. And it doesn't take, uh, you know, a waterfall of it. You know, we just need it like an IV drip at the right time in the right moments to, to help with uh, the anabolic effect. But uh, like insulin, leptin plays a vital role in weight regulation and hunger. Leptin was discovered back in 1994. So it's fairly recent discovery and one of many energy regulating hormones in the body. It is a type of hunger hormone or satiety hormone that sends signals to your body that it needs to eat. Leptin uh, levels are associated with an individual's body fat. So obese individuals will have high leptin levels. Uh, high leptin levels act on the hypothalamus to signal that it's okay to stop eating. However, too much leptin production can result in leptin resistance. Leptin resistance is your body's inability to use the leptin it produces. The leptin receptors have been blasted repeatedly with such high levels of leptin that they become resistant to the effects of leptin, causing you to overeat in addition to making weight loss extremely difficult. So, you know, some people just can't, uh, because they've bombarded their leptin receptors over time, uh, that system sort of shuts down and they can no longer take advantage of that. And they literally just don't know when they're full and they keep eating. So the goal is to keep le leptin levels high enough so that your body receives a satiety signal. Uh, but not so high that it causes leptin resistance. And there are a few things you can do to control leptin levels. The easiest way to uh, improve your leptin sensitivity is to make dietary changes that will improve your leptin function. First, get rid of processed foods. There's no need for that in your diet. Get rid of sugars and, of course, excess carbohydrate. You know, notice I said excess. Maybe you don't have to take it away completely. It's not the devil, and we're gonna keep driving that theme home and show you how to use it properly. 
See, fats have very little effect on leptin levels. While carbohydrates control your leptin response the most, you simply can't go wrong with a diet of meat, eggs, fish, and vegetables, and then we'll do the occasional refeed on specific carbohydrates in the proper amounts. A high-carb diet leads to leptin resistance. It does, causing you to lack the experience of feeling you have eaten enough. Uh, with a properly designed ketogenic diet or a properly designed low-carb, kind of a primal ancestral health diet, you can become le leptin sensitive again. So, you know, that's why it's such a great nutrition protocol for people who do have uh, some obesity issues or um, health issues. And so we're gonna kind of take advantage of the effects of becoming fat adaptive and, and utilizing the positive benefits of a ketogenic diet in a combination as a hybrid with our hard training and our physique goals. So uh, these are very, very important things. And it's good to kind of kind of have the background and why you need to be um, fat adaptive. So by reducing your intake of sugar and foods that contain triglycerides, we allow our bodies to receive the full and steady signal from the leptin that is being produced. Appetite is regulated reducing the signals to overeat. So, you know, that's why people like, you know, one of the reasons why when people go on a ketogenic diet, one of the first things they notice um, is they're just not as hungry anymore. They're not craving uh, the sugar. For the fat adapted person, there's no longer that sugar crash that used to happen so often throughout the day, which carb dependent people are accustomed to. The sugar roller coaster vanishes and you end up with sustained energy from fat and good mental acuity, a major benefit of being fat adapted. One of the first things I noticed when I made the switch over a decade ago. Your body will learn and prefer to burn fat constantly and you will feel a renewed sense of vitality once the adaptation period has occurred, usually around six weeks. But you know, with the people that I've worked with over the years, three to six weeks is, is the norm. I've had people crush it and just become fat adapted and start rolling after three weeks. Some people with maybe more metabolic damage, uh, it takes a little bit longer. But once you are fat adapted, everything becomes clearer. Uh, both literally and figuratively. It's like you get this amazing mental acuity and uh, this, this heightened um, you know, cognition, which is, again, something that I really, really loved about switching to this style of eating. Now, athletes who desire the performance benefits of a low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet, or like as we eventually turn it into more of a moderate-fat, higher-protein ketogenic diet, will see the magic begin to happen once they are fat-adapted. So the days and weeks prior to adaptation, that can be frustrating and challenging, um, especially hard lifters, athletes, you know, bodybuilders, even like CrossFitters, or even some endurance athletes. Uh, they're gonna see a performance decline. So you have to know that's coming, prepare for that mentally, and stay the course. Once you're fully fat adapted, you will notice some astonishing changes in your body, your mood, and your athletic performance. Um, uh, endurance athletes, you know, they'll they'll see a shift in their ability to sustain long efforts without the need for all this crazy sports drinks and goos and gels and bars and all that garbage and all these high, high carbohydrate sugar filled foods. So that's why it was a, such a great uh, discovery for the uh, hardcore endurance community. And uh, now it's over the last several years, it's crossing over to the high intensity strength training community. And I'm really proud to be a, you know, a small part of that. So it's, it's really, really cool stuff. So, so once you become fat adapted by greatly restricting carbs over that three to six weeks period and making that wholesale sh shift to convincing your body that fat 
is a great energy source as well as carbs uh, with some even better, you know, less side effect inducing stuff, uh, then you're now ready to embark or then you'll be ready to embark on my hybrid keto bodybuilding protocol. So, um, so again, I, I, if you've been eating more of a standard American diet or a higher carb diet or sort of like a nineties diet or even like an eighties or nineties bodybuilding diet, which would be high protein, high carb, low fat, you're going to want to take a period of time to adapt to do that. So how do you do that specifically? Well, it is a little different for everybody. When I bring on a, a coaching client that needs to be fat adapted, it's going to be different for everyone. I have to crunch a bunch of numbers. And then sometimes those numbers will change through the adaptation phase. But um, the broad strokes of it is, I would say, consume less than 30 grams of carbs. And that usually ends up being the norm pretty much throughout, uh, except for refeeds and, and targeting carbs around workouts. But uh, uh, you should keep your carbs below 30 grams and uh, typically only from uh, like green leafy vegetable sources and that sort of stuff. So, and a little bit of trace amounts of carbs you're going to get in either stuff. What I mean by trace amounts, for example, like if you drink a whey protein shake, a good quality whey shake will have one gram of carb per serving, you know, so you're going to get a little bit of trace carbs that come in from other foods and that's not a big deal. You don't even have to worry about that, but uh, it's pretty easy if you focus and track to get below that 30 carb range. For protein, for the fat adaptive, the person that's trying to become fat adapted, to get through that three to six weeks, making this big shift, consume a protein range between like uh, 0.8 and one gram of protein per pound of body weight. You know, that's, that's still a nice amount of protein, uh, but you don't need to take it to crazy, you know, athlete levels just yet. We're still trying to get your body used to burning fat as a fuel source and as a dominant fuel source and to recognize that and, and be able to make the shift from being a glucose burner to a full-time fat burner and then uh, be able to have the metabolic flexibility to switch quickly and interchangeably between whatever uh, fuel supply you're putting in your body at that time. And this becomes important when we start putting carbs around your workouts. So, you know, take that into consideration as well and remember that. Um, so, uh, you know, we were taking in that 0.8 to one gram of protein per pound of body weight. And with fat, when you're becoming fat adapted, um, I usually start you out at about 0.75 grams of fat per pound of body weight. Uh, if you're a little bit more, if you have more body fat, you know, if you're just a bigger person and, and weight loss is paramount, then I might even bring that down to that, you know, 0 0.5, 0 0.6 uh, grams of fat per pound of body weight. So that's usually where I start things. Now, oftentimes people are gonna say, well, well, when am I in ketosis? And what about ketosis? And should I track ketosis and all this kind of stuff? And number one, let me go ahead and promise you something, okay? You do not, well, first of all, do not use the urine tests, the little pee strips. Those are a total waste of time for you. If you're on any kind of a nutritional ketosis uh, protocol, those are completely useless. Here's what happens. When you first start uh, the process of a ketogenic style diet, um, your body is going to start you know, producing ketones in the blood. This is to, the very first reason it does that is, is to protect the brain because the brain cannot burn fat for energy. It has to burn carbohydrate or ketones. So it'll start to make the shift over to um, producing ketones in the absence of glucose. And then uh, what's gonna happen is um, uh, you're going to, your body's gonna be confused. So it will start secreting a lot of those ketones in the urine 
and even through the saliva. You you may have heard that people who first enter ketosis and first start becoming fat adapted, they have almost like an ammonia kind of a smell to their breath. And what that is, it's not some crazy unhealthy side effect. It's just that it's the ketone production and your, uh, your body is trying to expel it like a waste product. So it's pushing it through the urine and it's pushing it through the saliva and, and even can to some degree to the sweat. So when you pee on that strip, let's say you're a week in and you pee on the strip and it, you know, turns out to be purple and the little strip says that purple means you're in ketosis. You're going to be like, yes, cool. Yay. Ketosis this is what I'm supposed to happen. Uh, but then as your body becomes more efficient in burning ketones and utilizing ketones as an energy source and to fuel the brain, you're not going to be expelling them anymore. You're going to be using them. See, this is the part is you're becoming adapted. Your body is figuring out what you're doing and making the shift and developing that metabolic flexibility. So you could be four weeks in, whereas two weeks ago you were peeing purple on the strip and now you're peeing tan and you're like, well, what the hell, you know, why, why am I not you know, showing any, any ketosis anymore? Well, you're probably cons producing considerable, considerably more, but you're not going to see it through a pee strip because your body's actually using it. So ketones, when you test ketones through the urine and even in blood, you're testing ketones that are in, in transit, that are on their way somewhere, so to speak. So the only, in, in my opinion, as of right now, the only really re reliable uh, way to test ketones is in the blood. You do the little finger prick, you put it in a ketone monitor and you see where you're at. Well, here's the thing. Listen up here too. And there's going to be, you know, Kenny, the keto cultist is out there like shaking his head and wagging his finger at me, but trust me, this is true. And anybody that knows what the fuck they're doing will probably agree with me. Maybe not. There's a, there's a lot of shit science out there too. But, um, uh, the thing of it is, is you could be, you know, you, you could register ketones at 0.9 or you could register ketones at 2.7. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're either in or you're out. That's the only thing that matters. So, and those numbers are going to change throughout the day, even just like uh, blood glucose levels do. So, you know, if you, you could check it at nine in the morning and then check it at noon, or you could check it before a workout, you could check it after a workout, you can check it when you wake up, you can check it before you get, you're going to get different numbers all, all the way around. It's, it's not an exacting science by any means. And the point I'm trying to get to is it's not necessary. So here's my promise, unless you are an extreme outlier with severe metabolic distress, you stick to 30 grams of carbs or less and truly do that, you will be in some level of ketosis. And I always say mild to moderate ketosis because that's all that's necessary. You will achieve mild to moderate ketosis and uh, all you gotta do is stick to 30 grams or less. And, and on rare occasions, I've seen somebody that had to take it to like to 20, but, uh, but uh, in every case between 20 and 30, you're going to reach some level of nutritional ketosis. And the other thing is that, you know, I'll get yelled at a lot is you don't have to stay in ketosis and you won't stay in ketosis. And that's not even that important. We talked about the story with me comparing my protocol with Kenny, the keto cultist. Uh, you know, as long as you know that your body has the ability to uh, enter a state of ketosis when needed, and it can make that switch back and forth depending on what fuel source is available to it, you're good. You're getting tons of benefit from a hybrid ketogenic bodybuilding protocol. So, God, I hope that makes sense. But 
Um, and these are questions I get a lot. I want to cover that here. This actually isn't in the document, but you know, people always ask about measuring ketones and how important ketones are and you know, how will I know? Well, you know, if you're under 30 grams, you're going to be there. If you feel like total dog shit for the first three days, you know, you're probably doing it right. And then if all of a sudden you start to notice a mental acuity and you start noticing that your hunger is starting to go away and you can go longer between meals, then guess what? you're in some level of ketosis and that's a good way to know. So does that make sense? You got to get fat adapted first. If you're coming off of any other, you know, standard American diet or any, you know, carbohydrate dominant diet. And once you get through that three to six weeks and once you, you know, you feel like you're really catching a groove, then you can move towards my hybrid protocol, which is basically what I talked about in episode one. If you haven't listened to episode one, please check that out. Some good shit in there. And then basically the rest of the prime directives, two through seven, would apply to you at that point. Okay, makes sense. All right, let's move on. Um, directive number two. This is another one that will piss people off, but you know, sorry, I'm here to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Uh, but prime directive number two is you're either gaining or cutting. You got to determine which and act accordingly. And what do I mean? Well, it's true. It is true. You can simultaneously gain muscle and cut fat at the same time. But there will be a point, if you're a human being with a pulse, there will be a point where one will limit and disrupt the other. Additionally, I will say that I prefer to train someone from a point of leanness than a point of excessive body fat. Meaning if I get a client that, if I get a male client who's over, you know, 20 plus percent body fat or more, I'm going to try to lean him out first before I try to get him as jacked as humanly possible because it just works better that way. Uh, same with a woman. If I get a woman that's 30% body fat, I'm going to try to lean her out and get her down into the, you know, below 20 before uh, we go through any kind of a mass gain phase to put some lean mass on her that she can reveal again down the road and really look smoking. Um, so I'd rather per, per bring anyone down to a little bit of a point of leanness before we build them back up. But that aside, you must determine whether your priority is to pack on lean mass, we call that hypertrophy, or cut down to a very low level of body fat. But simply put, you're either gaining or you're cutting. So you either need to be in a caloric surplus if you're gaining mass, or you need to be in a caloric deficit if you're trying to you know, drop body fat, especially dramatically. Uh, the, the amount is different for everyone. You know, like we always say, um, I'll make my caloric adjustments. Um, well, here's what I do first. I'll try to determine a, uh, I'll, I'll try to de determine their baseline. Um, total daily ended energy expenditure is typically what I try to calculate first. Uh, that's basically the amount of calories they need to not only function as a healthy human being, but that's also taking account uh, the relative level of activity that they're putting out. So it's taking into in account uh, a living, breathing human being and the output that they're doing basically through their life and through their workouts. Once we have that baseline number, then I'll either add maybe 300 calories or 500 calories, depending on the person, if they're in a gain, or I'll reduce that uh, TDEE to a deficit of either three to 500 calories, depending on the person. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. It really depends on the person. Um, but you definitely need to be in a surplus to gain and a deficit to lose. And the longer you train, like if you've been training hard in the gym for five years plus, you know, maybe, maybe that might be a good number, you know, then that really makes a difference. Because if you're already a well-tuned lifter, 
or athlete, then your body's not going to respond to lean mass gains if you're in any kind of a deficit. It just won't. It needs the mortar from the food to build muscle and to recover and, and to be in an anabolic environment. So, you know, I know I'm kind of a beating a poor dead horse here, but you either need to be in a, in a caloric surplus if you're trying to gain mass, or you need to be in a caloric deficit if you're trying to cut or get lean. Now, here's the thing about protein. Everything, things come, it all comes back to protein with what I do because the keto cultist and the, and the orthodox, he's like, that's too much protein. Bullshit. I've already covered this. So back off, all right? If you are a hard training athlete, protein requirements are far greater. And then if when you go into a cut, if you want to keep that mass that you put on, you better jack your damn protein or it's going to go away. Now, even though a ketogenic diet is muscle sparing to a great degree, you can't stay in a, uh, in, in a deep uh, deficit in a cut for very long before you're going to start to get the detrimental effects of losing some mass. When I go into a hard cut for a competition, I, I come to terms with the fact that I'm going to lose a little muscle. So I try to build as much as humanly possible. And for me at my age, I'm 51, it's not even necessarily about building muscle anymore so much as it is about maintaining what I've put on over the last several years in competition, just not losing it and trying to make it look better and more symmetrical and filling it out and, and, and pl playing that chess match of making sure that I look the absolute best on stage that I possibly can at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning eight months from now. So, it, it, you know, it's a real chess match. But the high protein is paramount if you want to maintain that lean mass, okay? And if you are in a bulk, speaking of bulks or gain phase, whatever you want to call it, this should go without saying uh, as, you know, you're, you're in a ketogenic-driven lifestyle now, you know, health should be of importance to you. So these dirty bulks that guys especially do are total bullshit. It's all smoke and mirrors. And what do I mean by dirty bulk? There are a lot of guys out there that think, oh, you got to eat big to be big. And I'm, you know, so they're, they're eating a bunch of crap to put on weight, a bunch of junk food, you know, burgers, fries and pizza and beer and all this shit. And they, and they do this, you know, uh, coupled with some hard workouts but this is just to fill out their t-shirt, okay? It, this, this doesn't work, you know? If, if you're just trying to eat and lift to fill out your t-shirt so you can look impressive standing at line at the movie theater at the checkout at the supermarket, then you just don't freaking get it because it's about filling out and bulking up first through a lean, lean bulk, lean gain, and then, uh, then we, you know, peel it back off when you get into a cut. So, you know, just eating shit and lifting weight, unless you're a competitive power lifter or an offensive lineman, you know, these dirty bulks is just uh, lazy narcissistic deception. So uh, you'll just have to have more fat to peel off when you finally do get in a cut, if you ever do. And most of the dirty bulkers that I've known over the years in the gyms that I've been in, they typically don't have the discipline to cut to single digits body fat anyway. So, you know, I don't even worry about it anymore. But uh, you got to get it through this, you know, I got to eat, you know, uh, you know, even again, if you listen to episode one, I talked about my experience and back in the 90s before I knew anything about primal ketogenic diets, I was I tell the story about how I was eating eight to 10,000 calories a day to put on mass. And yes, it worked. Talk about a caloric surplus and that combined with the really good genetics that I discovered that I had, it did put a lot of lean mass on my body. I was also in my freaking 20s too, okay? But my food came from 
more nutrient dense, cleaner sources. It was like meat and potatoes, chicken and rice and vegetables and, you know, shakes and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't pizza, burgers and beer. So, uh, you know, make sure that when you are, uh, trying to put on muscle, you're in a gain phase, you're in a bulk, you just bring your calor- your calories above maintenance into a surplus, but you still keep those nutrients clean. Okay. And the, the, the food list that I give to all my clients still applies. So I hope that makes sense. That that's a big one for me. So, but you got it. You're either cutting or you're gaining. Uh, so, uh, decide on which one you're doing and then act accordingly. Um, okay. So we can move on from that. I think I've made my point. So prime directive number three, this is a good one because it literally comes up every day. It came up 10 minutes ago when I was answering a Facebook, uh, question, uh, or a post or whatever. But, um, keto is about low carb, not high fat. I'm probably going to say that 19 more times. So get ready. Keto is about low carb, not high fat. The butter chugging keto craze of pouring as much fat down your throat is just trading one addiction, carbs, for another, fat, and will generally never work long term. So repeat after me, kids. For you way in the back, pay attention, pay attention. Keto is about low carb, not high fat. Keto is about low carb, not high fat. Now, while fat is your preferred energy source most of the time, and will typically be, you know, either equal to protein and one-to-one ratio, and for some, even your dominant nutrient to a degree. It's not what makes keto work. It's the elimination of carbohydrates to flip your metabolic switch from glucose burner to fat burner. That's what makes the magic happen with keto. I can tie you to a chair and pour fat down your throat for days, and it will not get you into ketosis. Only the reduction, the sharp reduction of carbohydrate or starvation, which I don't recommend, will activate ketosis as a defense mechanism to fuel your body and produce ketones to feed your organs, your muscles, and your brain. So in order to get into ketosis, you know, people are like, well, you got to get your fat, you got to have your fat bomb and fat and fat. Well, yeah, you're just, you're, you are bringing in more fat now to replace the energy that you're eliminating from carbohydrate, but taking an excess, excess gobs of it is not the trick. Uh, you know, too much of anything will store on the body. Too much of anything will store on the body. I don't care what macronutrient it is, fat included, okay? And of all the three macronutrients, the most difficult one to convert to body fat is, ding, 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 you guessed it, protein. You know, it's easy to convert carbohydrate to body fat, and it's easy to convert fat to body fat. So you only need to take in as much as your output requires. And then if you're, if you're trying to gain maybe three to 500 calories above that, if you're trying to cut three to 500 calories below or even less, but fat matters and calories still matter. I can already think of six people in my ketogenic bodybuilding group that are applauding when I say calories still matter because there are some, you know, award-winning gurus out there that tell you that they mean nothing, but they do. And yes, insulin plays a role. They, all these things matter. You know, it's, it's a synergy, uh, but right up there in the top three is calories. Sorry, but still eating more calories than your body needs is going to turn into a bad thing. Now, there are other variables in there, and, and they apply to everyone individually. And I have had clients who, in a caloric deficit, still c- could not drop weight. That is true, but it typically had to do with some outlying hormonal issue or the fact that they were you know, insulin resistant or, you know, something was way out of whack, but for the overwhelming majority of us, calories are still a critical, critical element. So don't, don't forget that. So ketosis 
is simply a metabolic environment. It's the yellow brick road that takes you to Oz. It's not the be all, be all end all. You know, fat is an energy source, just as carbs. But fat is a cleaner burning energy, and it doesn't give you the insulin roller coaster that carbs has. Rather than overproducing insulin exogenously through a bunch of carbohydrate and sugar consumption, I'd much rather generate insulin through protein timing, specific carb carbohydrate cycling, like refeeds and putting you know carbs around my workouts, um, or through the fight or flight triggers of hard training. You know, this is a thing, and these are ways that you can. Uh, secrete some much needed insulin and create that anabolic environment that helps, you know, uh, synergistically and symbiotically work with your hard training. So like carbs, fat will store to have taken an excess. Does that, does that make sense? So, and that silly phrase, well, you got to burn fat or you, excuse me, you got to eat fat to burn fat. You've heard people say that, well, you got to eat fat to burn fat. Well, no, you don't. That's not really the way it works. And th that, that sentence is kind of silly in and of itself. You know, fat is a critical macronutrient and I recognize that. And I think it's critical for me. And I think it's done wonders by swapping the carbs with the fat. It's made a tremendous impact in my life and my health. But to think that you can eat all the fat you want with reckless abandon and you're gonna still lose weight no matter what is just, you know, intellectually dishonest, okay? So you've got to understand that keto is not about low carb. See, I said it again. It's about high fat. So you got to eat what I call primal keto. What do I mean by primal keto? If I threw you on this earth, you know, 20,000 years ago, how would you eat? You'd either, you know, you'd hunt and gather and you'd only gather if you couldn't hunt <laughs> because you crave crabby meat, uh, fatty meat. Uh, there's nothing more anabolic than food, food and sleep. I can't tell you how many times I've said that over the last 25 years. That when, you know, guys will say to me, you know, how can I put on muscle? I'll say, well, you need to be in an anabolic environment. You do that through your training and your food and your sleep. There's nothing more anabolic than food and sleep. The workout is just the trigger. It's the stimulus. It's the breakdown of lean tissue. We're going to talk about workouts in a second, but you know, there's nothing more anabolic than food and sleep. So, but to think that you can have excess of anything and not put on weight is silly. So the other thing is, is when going keto, you don't want to get distracted by the yummy looking keto wannabe foods that don't do much to flip your anabolic switches. You know, keto cheesecake and keto pizza, they're not the answer. You know, you want to, like I said, you want to take a page from the ancestral health handbook, eat like a hunter gatherer, mimic the diets of our leanest, fittest, most disease free ancestors. That's the route you want to go. They craved fatty meat. You should too. And they didn't eat blocks of cheese. Okay. Uh, uh, one commandment, if you will, that I give everyone that starts down this path, because it always happens, uh, usually in the beginning. And I'll often say this, if the first thing you do when going keto is look for keto versions of the shit that got you into this mess in the first place, you will fail. You will fail. So if you start going keto and, and you're just looking for the keto cheesecake, that's just a giant wad of fat and uh, artificial sugars and processed bullshit that's typically very low in protein. If you think eating that garbage and freaking slamming pork rinds hand over fist and eating blocks of cheese and getting the, the keto pizza at the local pizza place with the uh, <laughs> cauliflower crust, you think this is the way to get in a lean, mean, badass freaking physique? And you are sorely mistaken and terribly misled. So if the first thing you do when going keto is to look for keto versions of the shit that got you into the mess, this mess in the first place, I'm sorry, pumpkin, you're going to fail. 
Okay, so you want to stick to those primal ancestral foods: beef, poultry, eggs, pork, fish. Uh, some grit, some whey protein isolate is a great thing to have handy just to try to help you meet your protein requirements without too much effort. Uh, you know, some some green leafy plants and vegetables are great. I love healthy oils, the omega-3 oils like uh, uh, olive, avocado, and macadamia, and even the occasional saturated oil like coconut oil is, is great as long as it fits within the macros that you have set for yourself to accomplish whatever goal you're doing, cutting or gaining. So we covered that already. Um, so that's the way you need to be eating, okay? Um, now we obviously, that list can be altered slightly if you're in a cut. Um, and even dramatically, if you're on what I call like a contest cut or like a, uh, PSMF, we're going to talk about too, that too, when we get to the cutting part, which is coming up, uh, I think that's the directive after next. So anyway, do we understand that now? Do we understand that? Okay, good. So I don't have to worry about, uh, anybody telling me I got to put butter in my coffee from anybody that's listened to this podcast ever again. Thank the Lord. I just filtered some people out. All right, directive number four, increase meal frequency. Oh my God, the keto orthodoxy just passed out, literally just passed out. They're they're scrambling to find the off button of this podcast now because that is just heresy. I get it. You know what? One of the cool things about keto, especially if you're just doing it for health and, and maybe just some weight loss, if you're just the average Jane or Joe, you don't have to eat as often as you're burning your own fat for energy. I totally understand how that works. I just explained that to you. Your cravings are reduced, which is great. You're not going to overeat. Your satiety is heightened. Fantastic. And that's perfectly fine if you only want to eat twice a day or even the OMAD, the trendy new, you know, one meal a day thing. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you and, and, and say that our hunter gatherers probably often ate only one time a day. That's just the way the world worked back then but they also weren't uh, training for a physique competition or try to look like super badass, you know, at their family reunion. They were just trying to freaking survive and they were in phenomenal health and they were lean and mean. But uh, nowadays things are a little bit different. So if you're crushing it on that two meal a day or one meal a day and, and you love that and it's working great for you and all your goals are being accomplished and you're checking off all those boxes, go for it. I'm not here to tell you otherwise. I'm not one of those people. If you be you, if it's working for you, don't change a damn thing. You know, or if you're thinking, hmm, maybe I'll make this adjustment for four to six weeks and see if this helps me maybe put on some more lean mass or fill out my physique a little better, help me drop a little bit more body fat or keeps me from overeating or keeps me from binging. You know, all these things can come into play if you increase your meal frequency. It's an it's an old school bodybuilder thing. You know, I'll be honest with you, that's freaking where I came from. But there are certain things from that time and from that era that still work and they're not going to change for me. See, in my experience, and with many others, if the goal is to build an extreme physique that maximizes lean mass and then systematically, um, that is systematically preserved, if you want to preserve that muscle while you start to shed the body fat, I have found that the old school approach of consuming food every three to four hours works incredibly well, just like we did back in the day. Yeah, I'm going to be one of those annoying guys that always says, back in my day, we uh, ate five, six times a day and we were damn shredded. Yeah, I'm going to be one of those annoying guys. You know, 10 years from now, I'll be the guy sitting on my front yard saying, get off my lawn, holding a shotgun. But anyway, um, so consuming food every three to four hours works really well. You need to eat more protein and generally more calories than the lady in the cubicle next to you or the guy in the desk behind you. 
You know, that lady next to you in the cubicle, she doesn't train like you four to six days a week at a very extreme intensity. She doesn't do cardio three to four days a week or do a hit workout on Saturday mornings. She has no aspirations to compete and never uses terms like peeled, cut, shredded, jacked, dry, vascular, hard, et cetera, all these things. For you, in my opinion, the hard training athlete, you need to eat. You also wanna be in an, an, an as anabolic as possible environment and be in a positive nitrogen balance. All these things lean to helping you more easily put on muscle growth. A positive nitrogen balance is what all those looking to put on lean body mass aim to achieve. It is important to obtain the correct balance of non-essential uh, and essential amino acids by regularly saturating our muscle tissues with protein. We supply the raw materials needed to promote ongoing protein muscle synthesis. So a diet heavy in complete proteins from whole foods like beef, poultry, eggs, and fish, and the consumption of at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is I recommend for most anybody, I even do more, especially if I'm trying to compete, um, uh, do this per day, and that will help you keep your nitrogen balance in a positive state, and therefore that is critical. So, and yeah, you know what? As much as I love a, a primal ketogenic diet of whole foods, supplementation can help. To maintain a positive nitrogen balance, supplementation in the form of maybe like a good whey protein isolate uh, or an EAA supplement, that can be uh, an indispensable prerequisite that any experienced lifter will, will swear by, uh, often including me. Uh, you'll occasionally hear the keto cultist poo-poo whey shakes, oh, you don't want to drink shakes. Why? For me, if you buy a cold filtered or hydrolyzed whey that is low in carbs, like one gram or less per serving, then drink up. You're drinking fast absorbing protein. Explain to me how that's a bad thing, especially if you're a hard training athlete. You can't. Whole foods are great, but if you can't get to it and you're on, you have a busy lifestyle like me, like sometimes I'll go from client to client to client to client nonstop from five in the morning until one in the afternoon, then I have to work out and then I'm behind a computer for four hours. Then I have to take care of, you know, I've got a daughter and a grandson and a beautiful wife at home that, that you know, need my attention and there's all this shit that goes with life and then there's that whole sleeping thing. Sometimes slamming a, a chocolate whey shake, you know, is, is a great way to get that, that uh, you know, for me, 50 grams of protein in and just a moment's notice. So, you know, whole foods alone may not provide enough quality amino acids for rebuilding and, uh, and the beginning of continued growth. At the very least, it's a great insurance policy against negative nitrogen levels. Supplementation may ensure that there are no nutritional gaps to subvert our muscle building efforts. So have some steak and eggs, and then maybe three to four hours later, you know, have some more or, or some chicken or some pork or down a whey shake like I do if you can't get to whole food and then it's, it's good in the hood, right? All right, cool. So yeah, that increasing meal frequency for some may really do the trick, especially if you're trying to take it to that extreme level. All right, directive number five. When the goal is to get shredded, Things are going to change a little bit. All right. So if and when you get to the point where you want to step on stage, maybe, or just get to the leanest you've ever been after all the hard work has been done in the gym, you will need to go on a cutting phase or go through a cut. For me, since I don't dirty bulk, as we've discussed, I am ready to carve it up into, if I'm ready to carve it up and compete, I know my body fat needs to be well below 10%. And if I'm going to stand on stage, that means like way below 10%, like five or 6%, which is 
brutally hard to do, and not many people on this earth will ever do it. You know, far of those who are sick. <laughs> I mean, people who choose to do it. You know, it's a lot of damn work, especially trying to preserve the muscle that you built. And to do this, regardless of what Kenny the keto cultist said, you will need to drop some body fat. Uh, and not only do you have to drop dietary fat to do that, as well as the carbs, as I said, you will significantly need to raise your protein to spare that muscle. Um, we call it a pre-contest diet. That's what we called it in the old days. That's, that's what everybody in the bodybuilding community has been calling it for 50 years or more. You go into a cut. Well, now it's got this, you know, sexy term called protein sparing modified fast or PSMF, uh, which is basically just a fancy way to call a cut a cut by giving it something, you know, fancy. <laughs> and that's, uh, and listen, a cut is usually anywhere between, you know, depending on how lean you are and your genetics, um, a cut will be anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks, or, you know, you may even start to taper calories down even at 24 weeks out from your goal, depending on how much you're carrying and how easily you drop fat. But you got to understand that any cut or any protein sparing modified fast is only intended to be a short term strategy. Okay. It is for fat loss and a quick metabolic reset. And if done longer, in my opinion, than nine to 12 weeks for many, it may become counterproductive. And it's never intended to be a long-term solution. I would personally never recommend this for more than nine to 12 weeks for most, uh, unless you have some serious issues. Uh, you really need to you take off a, a, an incredible amount of body fat. Um, but for the serious physique competitor, and uh, nine to 12 weeks, and just for the enthusiast, I probably wouldn't do more than you know six to eight weeks. Uh, it's something that I generally only do once or twice a year. Um, and then I ease back into my typical keto bodybuilding hybrid nutrition protocol. So when I'm done with the cut, if I'm competing, when the contest is over, I titrate my calories back up to maintenance. I bring my fat back up to where I typically would have it at that uh, 0.775 uh, grams per pound of body weight. You know, make sure my you know hormonal production is in place and everything you know heals and repairs, and I'm back to good solid nutrition again and can hit the gym hard after a short layoff from the hard, you know, work of competition. You know, many regardless as this, the, the not, you know what, many do regard this as the most effective way to lose body fat. It is the most effective way to lose body fat. I'm sorry. But you ask any bodybuilder or physique competitor that's been doing this, what do you do if you want to really get shredded and lose body fat? You cut the carbs. And even if you do more of a ketogenic style diet, they're even going to tell you, that you need to drop your fat down some. You need to be in a hard deficit. You need to crank your protein to preserve muscle. And then you need to suffer your ass off until you get to where you're happy with your reflection and you are to a point where you think the judges will agree or whoever's looking at the picture you had taken or whoever's staring at you in that tight dress or, you know, tight shirt at the family reunion or at the wedding, you know? So, you know, nobody carries a scale on stage with them. Uh, it's all about how you look. So to get to that level of leanness where you are making people's eyes sort of widen when you walk into the room, you better be prepared to go through many weeks of the hardest work you've ever done. I'm not going to candy coat this bullshit because everybody else out there in my profession does. They try to make you think that everything is easy and works like magic in minutes a day as long as you follow their program. I don't have a damn program, okay, essentially. Uh, I'm a coach. So I'm altering everything. I have basic tenets and then I adjust it to the client depending on he or who she, he or she is. I, I do that with myself. 
but you've got to go through these, you know, basic changes and you got to go through that shift. And if anybody tells you that a cut is easy, what are they trying to sell you? You know, follow the damn money. In my experience, when somebody, and this happens, somebody's tried to take one of my clients, the first thing they try to tell them is, is, oh, you don't have to suffer like that with my program. You can blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. You know, if you're going to work with me, you're going to hear me tell you that, hey, you're going to have to suck it up and you're going to have to suffer for a while. And that's just the way it works. And we're going to do everything our possible to quell some of those really, really bad times. But for the most part, it's not going to be easy. And it may be probably the hardest thing you've ever done. Because what? Nobody has ever went through it, accomplished their goal and shown off that new physique and reached that level and regretted the pain and the suffering. They would all tell you they'd do it again in a heartbeat because it's that worth it. So understand if you're going to get into a hard cut, it's going to be the hardest work you've ever done. And, and I'm really sort of, you know, going off the document script right now, because I think the most important thing that I probably didn't really touch on in the document is how hard it's going to be. And my clients need to hear this and the people in the group need to hear this and new people coming in need to hear this. Your cushy damn lifestyle has made you cushy and it's made you cushy in your lifestyle and it's made you cushy around your midsection and you've got some work to do and it's time for you to join our club and play our little reindeer games. And I promise you, when you, if you walk through fire with us, you're going to come out hard and you're going to come out changed. And you're going to go from looking like a big wad of bubble gum to looking like you're carved out of fucking wood. So if that's what you want, then get ready to suffer and get ready to like it. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll dial it back. But, um, so anyway, you want to go with a, uh, a high protein, like we're talking about the protein sparing modified fast, you know, the, the new fancy term for going through a hard cut. It's a high protein, low fat, low carb protocol. It's just simply what it is. But I, you know, I purposely never call it a diet at that stage because I don't want any of you to think that it's a lifestyle. It is a hack. And uh, it's, it's a short term hack to accelerate fat loss. And uh, for some, you know, it will help ease you into a ketogenic protocol because if you go through a hard cut to achieve a certain weight loss goal, and then ease back into, you know, more of a standard ketogenic protocol or my, my, even my hybrid off season protocol, you know, you're definitely going to be well adapted by the time you get there. Okay. Because even old school bodybuilders from back in the day, you know, back in the nineties when I was training so hard and really, you know, into the culture, you know, these men and women would be in ketosis for six, eight, 10 weeks. And they didn't even know it because they were just really low carb. They were lower fat. And, uh, you know, so they were in ketosis and didn't even know what the hell that meant. Uh, but they knew that that's what it took to get lean. Okay. So, you know, protein sparing, modified fast, a cut diet, whatever. That just means that you're jacking your protein. You're lowering, uh, not only your carbs, but you're even bringing the fat down. So what does that mean? Lowered fat. Um, I can tell you that for most clients, I will have their fat in, a, in roughly the 60 gram range. 60 gram range. And then I will uptick the protein a little bit and play with those two numbers back and forth to try to reach the right ratio uh, at their new cutting caloric ceiling, which is well below maintenance. So I'll just play with those two numbers. And then also we still, we still, depending on the individual, we still may, you know, want to sprinkle some carbs around workouts and we still will do refeeds up to a certain point. Some can do 
you know, heavy refeeds on a, on a weekend because they're so depleted. Some can't do quite as much. It really depends on individual. But refeeds still still come to the equation. And there's been all this. I got so many cool stories. You know, I've had clients that will be in, be in a hard cut. You know, I've had a couple even you know competing, and they'll even be weeks out from a competition and just suffering. And they'll say, "Hey, Rob, the, the scale stalled. Things aren't happening. I'm not noticing any changes." And then I'll say something to the some version of this. I will say you know what, tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to have two bananas drenched in honey, a rice cake and some peanut butter, and then go right to bed. They will think I've just lost my damn mind. They'll be like, oh, there's no way if I do that, I will, you know, sabotage everything and everything's gonna go out into the weeds and I'm like, no, trust me on this. And they will do that and they will wake up the next morning and I will probably get a message, you know, before, you know, 5 a.m. saying, holy shit, I'm down a pound. I look great. I feel better. Well, that little refeed, that mini refeed, I call it, can go, you know, can do wonders for somebody in a hard cut. You know, it's going to make you look great because it's going to draw some water into the muscles, similar to what we do, you know, the, the morning of a show and the night before a show. Um, it's going to give you a little bit of a metabolic reset. It's going to throw some gas on the fire. It's going to shake shit up again. It's going to, it's like a little kick in the pants to your metabolism to get things moving again because things do stall. It's just the way the body works. It's not bro science. It's fucking fact. I've been doing this long enough to know. So, um, yeah, so high protein, low fat, low carb for a period of time. And then you definitely want to pull out of that shit because if you go the wrong way for too long, it can really go off into the weeds. Now, um, some proponents of the, you know, protein sparing modified fast advocate super low calorie. And I'm sorry, I will never agree with that. I will never agree with that. I, I think for a hard training athlete, um, I, I will always keep them, you know, for, for men, it's usually somewhere, you know, I would never go below say like 1800 calories. And usually it's somewhere between 2000 and 2200 for most men. Uh, and for women, it's you'll never see me drop below about 1,100 calories, 1,200 calories, even on a competition diet, because we don't want the the opposite effect of being uh, too starved. Okay, so um, do not advocate the 800 calorie, 900 calorie protein sparing modified fast that some do. I think that's crazy for the hard training athlete. I just do. So uh, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, so you know. Um, You will read a lot in other keto groups and forums and hear from the occasional misinformed keto expert that you should keep protein low on keto. And again, this is not accurate or it's definitely not advised. They will suggest that you will convert the protein to glucose and will be knocked out of ketosis. The process they're referring to is what's called gluconeogenesis, which simply means to make glucose from amino acids in protein. While there is a small amount of truth there, you must understand that gluconeogenesis is a demand-driven process. In periods of extremely low carbohydrate consumption, which is a good thing, your brain will run on roughly 75 to 80% ketones, and it requires roughly 18 to 25% glucose. The brain cannot run on fat. I think I mentioned that earlier. So it needs ketones and glucose to run efficiently. Now, your body will convert protein into glucose to fulfill the 18 to 25% requirement as needed. It's not all big one whack. It just takes the, the little bit that's needed. So yeah, you may convert a little bit of your protein into glucose to fuel your brain. That's why we take one of the reasons why we take in so much as an insurance policy. And it will only convert the precise amount required to fuel your brain and not a damn gram more. It's a demand driven process. Protein does not turn to gummy bears. 
Only a small segment of the population with severe chronic distress, serious liver or kidney problems, or certain type 1 diabetics need to be concerned about the overconsumption of protein. And if you're working out, which if you're listening to this, as we said, then you probably are, your protein requirements, as I also said, increase, you know, greatly. So, um, so lastly, on protein, uh, it, protein generally increases satiety, which is another thing. Some people it doesn't so much. I've experienced that. Some people need that little bit of fat in there to bring to, for satiety levels. I, I found it to be a, a good uh, increaser of satiety for most people. Uh, and it tends to be so as much as fat and definitely more than carbohydrate. Carbs are the worst. So your appetite will re be reduced too. So taking in a lot of protein in a cut is, once again, is another reason that it's a good thing. Um, and just to, just to be even more repetitive, I, I can't stress this enough. If you're in a cut or a protein sparing modified fast, whatever you want to call it, it is not fun. It is bland, repetitive, and just damn hard. But like everything we put ourselves through, the end result is far worth it. So I think we've, we've covered that. Um, you know, cutting is, is a tough process. Uh, we dial everything back. We dial in those numbers. We reset that caloric ceiling to much lower into that deficit. And then you just got to grind and suffer and get through the work to achieve your goal. So um, don't let anybody tell you that it's going to be... <laughs> A cakewalk. So anyway, directive number six, we're almost through this damn thing. Train hard, train intense, and be consistent. Number six, train hard, train intense, be consistent. Intensity is the key to success. I will never stop saying that. You'll Hopefully, if this podcast goes to episode 100, I'll still be talking about intensity in the gym, that that's the key. Your goal on work sets is to push to failure while maintaining near-perfect form. Now, over my 25 plus year career, I've learned a lot regarding muscle growth. I've developed instincts. I've applied techniques from the industry's best and have developed dozens of my own strategies as well. Bodybuilding, whatever that means to you, man, it's still the wild west. Much of what is responsible for building muscle then leaning it out to reveal it is still an evolving science with many variables relative to the individual. Genetics, huge one. Time and training, diet, sleep, Big one, recovery, huge. Your muscle maturity, how long you've been training. Your level of effort varies from person to person. Your ability to push through pain. All of these things matter. Muscle growth isn't learned in a classroom. I'm sorry. Close your physiology textbooks. It's not learned in a classroom. It's learned over time with lots of blood, sweat, and tears. Sets and reps, hard in the gym to failure, giving it all you got is what brings muscle growth. Okay. So you got to give it as much as you possibly can and keep that intensity high. And I also definitely back down the volume. More is not better. The term itself, more is better is silly. You know, it, it's trying to give you a built-in guarantee as Mike Menser would say. So if two, what is two hours in the gym is good, then what three is better. Well, then five must be better than that. And if 20 sets per body, body part is great, let's, let's do 40. Let's do 100. Hell, let's take the day off from work and spend 18 hours in the gym. If more is better, right? Nor is not better. More is not better. Here's the thing. If you want muscle to grow, you have to tear it down systematically under intense effort in the gym. And it doesn't take as much as you think to tear that down. Sometimes I only do one or two sets of certain movements. 
but I give it absolutely everything I have. And when I say true failure, I mean probably maybe a level of failure that you've never experienced before. Shake your head all you want, but there are some people out there who think they train hard. And maybe, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you could take it up a notch and you may have had that one rep left. I will often tell my clients, don't get 12 if you can get 13. Don't get six if you can give me seven. And if seven is your goal, then I'm expecting nine. That's the way it works. You better be fighting and crying and grunting and screaming and have veins bulging out of your neck and giving it hell. And you should be held. That last rep should be almost be held in a static position as you are giving it everything you got to complete that last almost impossible, if not impossible rep. Then when you do that, you go home, you feed the muscle and you leave it alone because first you have to compensate for the damage that you did in the gym. And it takes more time than you think because once you compensate, which means regrow from what you've destroyed, if you want to grow more muscle, which is why you were there in the first place, then you've got to overcompensate. So imagine digging a hole. That's, you know, the breakdown of muscle. Well, first you got to fill the hole back to ground level. That's just fixing what you've already had. And if you want to pack some more dirt on top and build a mound, that's new muscle and that's overcompensation. That takes even longer. So when I tell people that I only train one muscle per week, it's not because it's some arbitrary bro split. That's bullshit. People trying to sell you magazines and programs are telling you that. The reason I only train legs once a week is because I know it's going to take a damn week to truly not only compensate from the damage, but then overcompensate to put more on. So don't get stuck in the more is better bullshit. You keep your intensity high and your volume low. I always incorporate high intensity techniques in my workouts to maximize growth. I do things like rest pause sets, forced reps, negatives, force negatives, things if you have a partner, what's called uh, trainer applied resistance, things called hard stops. Me and my workout partners do this all the time. And if you don't have a partner, that's fine. There are ways you can even work around this. Anybody can do a rest pause set. And you know, there are ways you can do negatives. You, you can do hard stops even to a degree, but um, high intensity is the key. And then you've got to take that mindset and turn it into nothing but massive consistency. You must be consistent. If I could paint one huge word on my gym for everyone to read every day and only one, it'd be consistency. Now, if you give me three words, <laughs> And then the, the second would be dedication, followed third by intensity. And maybe not even in that order, because consistency, dedication, and intensity are all absolutely critical. Motivation is horseshit. Motivation always wanes. But dedication, now you can follow through dedication. If I've got a goal set six months from now, I stay dedicated to that goal, even if I feel like dog shit that day. And there are times if I feel like dog shit, guess what I'll do? I won't train. Because maybe my body's telling me that I need some more recovery. And if I try to work a mus muscle that's not overcompensated, then I'm just short-circuiting the growth process. So take that day off. Right now I'm training on a, I, I just went from a three-day split, three days a week, of 30 to 40 minutes of training, to I'm working into a four-day split. But we're never working the same muscle group twice per week. Because we want to give plenty of time for ample recovery because me and my guys go hard especially if there's a goal in front of us. We go hard and then you wanna give your body plenty of time to overcompensate, heal, grow, and get the real benefit of that workout before you, you know, do it again, which you obviously will. 
My goal is that together we develop a new level of growth through hard training and nutrition, you know, to help you reach your absolute best genetic potential. So hard training. And don't worry, you know that in future podcasts, we're going to talk a lot about high intensity training. It's just, it's just going to happen. All right. So the last one, directive number seven, success is determined by as much of what you uh, don't consume as what you do consume. So if you eat like shit, drink beer, justify cheat days and cheat weekends, then you'll never develop the discipline. You know, we talked about discipline necessary to realize a truly lean, jacked, aesthetically appealing, even stage worthy body. It stuns me when a guy will tell me that, Hey man, I'd, I'd like to look like you or that guy or that guy. Um, but I'm just not willing to give up my nachos and my beer on the weekends. Dude, if getting hammered on the weekends or downing three to four beers a night to wind down is keeping you from being in your best shape ever, you don't need a trainer. You need a fucking therapist, okay? I mean, if that's what you want, though, that's fine. But don't come to me and say, I want this, but I don't want to give up that. You're talking to the wrong damn trainer. I mean, you be you if that's you, but don't, don't come ask me. And then when I give you the answer, argue with me. That's not the way it works. I'm too damn old and grumpy to put up with that horse shit. You know, so don't come to me and ask me my advice with your beer disclaimer in tow. And it's not just the guys. I have many women clients or women that I've talked to in consultations who tell me they've got to down a damn bottle of wine, a bottle of wine every night to cope with the stress of the day or to, to wind down after a hard day. Listen, I get it, princess. Life is hard. But if a bottle of wine goes down your pie hole every night, then you don't need me. You need a fucking 12 step program. Okay. I'm not trying to be harsh. Sometimes you got to, you know, grab people by the shoulder, stare them in the eye, shake them a little bit and tell them what they need to hear. And then maybe they can, you know, get some real progress after that little intervention. You know, I've, I've literally had um, long consultations. You know, I used to do this hour and a half consultation to get people started on this. And they pay good money for that. And then after going through all of this and laying it all out for them, they'd say, you know, I just can't give up pizza, though. I just can't do it you can't. Okay, that's fine. But I cannot help you unless you conjure up the discipline, fortitude, strength and conviction to put down the damn pizza and back slowly away from it. Okay. Listen, seriously, in all seriousness, I'm not, you know, I'm, I was having a little fun with that, but it's all very true. You know, I get it. Sugar and carbohydrate are a legitimate and nearly unbreakable addiction. It has a huge impact on neurotransmitter and receptors. Uh, that's why the addiction exists. And the reward system of the brain, which reacts to sugar similarly as it does to cocaine, heroin, and nicotine, there is an upregulation, which our brain, uh, which is our brain making more receptors when we eat sugar and carbs due to the increased release of the neurotransmitters, dopamine and endorphins. This sugar high, you know, it, it creates what is called a euphoric recall and uh, an addiction memory circuit. This pleasant feeling stays in our brains as an inherited sensitive reward system. It is what causes addiction. And we will keep chasing this feeling forever, just like a, like a cocaine addict or an alcoholic. And you know, like that alcoholic, once you're there, in many ways, you'll always be there and always have to fight it. I do. Everybody does. There's no easy answer. But total avoidance during a properly formulated adaptation protocol, like we talked in Directive 1, you know, is absolutely critical. Additionally, uh, and this is going to sound abrupt and even insensitive, but resetting back to your default factory setting, it's not an all or nothing proposition, or it is an all or nothing proposition. You just, you got to do it. 
This isn't an occasional diet that you do here and there. It's something that you don't skip on weekends or uh, eat shit just because you too heavily succumb to social pressures or you're just spoiled and regularly convince yourself or justify to yourself again that you've earned the right to eat garbage because of some success or some stressor, stressor in your life. If you have addiction issues that you haven't fully owned, or if you're not just sure that you're willing to make a complete wholesale change, then stop now and come back when you're ready. We'll be here for you, okay? And that's coming from a place of love. If you're not ready, I don't wanna waste my time and I don't wanna waste your time. But when you are ready, I will give you everything I have, okay? This lifestyle change is for those who desire massive, whole and complete change. For those who have seen the light or the darkness and are ready to live a life free of disease, pain, and excess weight. This lifestyle is for the all or nothing types, the driven, the committed, and those who are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or like many listening to this, want to push the boundaries of their physiques and push them to a whole new level. Re remember, you know, our, our whole motto is keto for the extreme physique culture. To be extreme, you have to live to the extreme and train to the extreme. If this describes you in any way, and you're ready to make a commitment to change, not just some part-time diet or hobby that you can turn on or off at a whim, then welcome to the tribe. Remember, once you're adapted and provided you are active and not metabolically broken, you will not only have the properly timed carbohydrate refeed, but can even live through the occasional indulgence and have that cheap meal without any issue or consequence. It might even be a good thing. Just don't go off on a car bender and you'll be fine. In other words, don't plan to cheat. Rather, understand that these occasional slip-ups will happen. So do it and enjoy it, then move along. Or in the case of some of my clients, I'll let you know when it's a damn good time based on the feedback that I get from you. Okay, does that make sense? So let's recap, because this is going long and I don't want it to. Let's recap. The, the prime directives, the rules of engagement are, one, become fat adapted. Number two, understand that you're either gaining or cutting. Number three, keto is a, not about low carb. Keto is about low carb, not high fat. Sorry, <laughs> I've said that so much, I'm confusing it. Keto is about low carb, not high fat. Number four, increase meal frequency for some that works can work wonders. Uh, number five, when the goal is to get shredded, things will change. Number six, train hard, train intense, and be consistent. And number seven, success is determined by as much what you don't consume as what you do. Okay. So obviously this isn't, uh, you know, Aunt Betty's keto. This is my hybrid protocol to maximize muscle and then have the ability to cut uh, down while preserving that muscle that you've built so hard. Um, I'm not here to argue with the keto orthodoxy. I mean, I will, but I'm not here to do that. I'd prefer you just to go your own way. You do you, I'll do me. And if you want to tag it along, I'd love to have you. And I welcome you with open arms. If what they do works for them, great. I'm confident in my program as well. And it's been battle tested, tweaked, and you know, retested over and over for years. Now, I'm not an IFBB pro, and, but I'm pretty pleased with what I've been able to achieve, especially now that, uh, hell, I'll be turning 52 this year. And not to mention what my clients have achieved. God bless them. They're, they're, they're what keep me going. It's human nature to want to look great and feel great. And I honestly feel I've cracked the code with how I eat and how I train. I'm confident. Whether you're 20 or 70, we can work together to find your best body. And I'm not alone. While I'm proud to be a pioneer in combining extreme training and keto to attain an extreme physique or even a stage, you know, ready body, there are others out there doing it too. I've got some really cool peers in this little community that we've built. Invite, I invite you to join me in all my crazy shenanigans along with the other members of my Island of Misfit Toys over in the KGB group on Facebook. See what you can achieve. What limits can you push? What boundaries can you break through? This is a ride that will continue. 
on and on and on. It's a lifestyle. It's a journey. And while the time may be running out on my visits to the competition stage, who knows? I certainly have decades left in me to push and coach others to be the absolute freaking best, biggest badasses they can possibly be. So I hope that this little podcast maybe uh, has been enlightening and, and encouraging to you. And then maybe you've learned a couple of things along the way, or at the very minimum, you're re-motivated or motivated for maybe for the first time in a long time. I hope that's the case. So God bless you. Give me some feedback. If you need anything, join the group, go to robgoodwin.com, shoot me an email. I have coaching available. I've got a fantastic $7 a month, cancel at any time, membership where you have access to every workout I do. There's nearly 200 in there now and more coming every week. So um, I'm gonna go ahead and sign off. I've enjoyed it. I cannot wait for episode three. Hell, I can't wait for all of them. I'm really excited what the future is going to bring here. And again, I thank you for your support. Please leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, tell a friend. And episode three will be coming next week. So God bless. Go train freaking hard. Eat a steak and get lots of rest, kids. And above all, take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. Bye.